0: Everybody quieted down on their own accord. That doesn't, doesn't happen a whole lot here, so. In June of 1815, so this is a long time ago. In June of, you remember, back, back in the good old days. June of 1815, um, the Battle of Waterloo was fought. Between a coalition of British forces led by the Duke of Wellington and against French forces led by Napoleon Bonaparte, Um, approximately 47,000 men lost their lives that day. 47,000. The British awaited news of the outcome and... The way they would relay the news is a signalman would have been in a tower looking out to the sea for a ship to relay this message, and then he would send a signal to another signalman on a hilltop, and another to a hilltop, to a hilltop, to a hilltop, all the way until it reached London. So the British were awaiting the news of the outcome, and eventually a ship Comes into the harbor and it's a foggy day, but they begin to relay a message and the signalman receives the message. First word Wellington. Second word Defeated. And then the fog settles in, and it grew so dense that the ship could no longer be seen. So the news is sent from hilltop to hilltop to hilltop to hilltop. Wellington defeated, and all of England is in despair. This past Friday, we commemorated the death of Jesus. We had a service here Friday night and I must admit as Maggie Johnson read Isaiah 53 from the message, there was a part of me that literally felt a kindred spirit with Peter because I wanted to get up when she said that they thought Jesus, of Jesus as scum that he was ripped and tore and crushed, beaten and tortured, I wanted to get up and say, never, Lord. There was, there was something brewing inside me that it was like, no way, Lord. This can't be. I understood Peter a little better Friday night. The perfect son of God was mocked, was spit upon, was slapped, was punched, was actually beaten by a few different collection, collections of people throughout the evening. Eventually, he ends up before some Roman soldiers where he is... A mock crown of razor-sharp thorns, likely some over four inches long, pressed into his skull. And then the Gospels tell us that as they mocked him as a king and put a staff in his hand, they took the staff away from him and started to beat him on the head again and again. According to Roman execution practices, he would have been stripped naked... When he was brought out to be flogged, he was likely lightly flogged by two Roman guards with whips constructed with several leather straps with fragments of bone and metal tied intermittently on the straps. And the point was to inflict such damage to the one that they flogged that he was practically dead after they had beat him. It it inflicted such damage on the back and even over to the chest and the stomach and the buttocks and the legs that muscle was exposed, tendon was exposed, sometimes bone and organ was exposed. To be flogged and crucified by the Romans was literally to be mutilated. Isaiah prophesied his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man. And his form marred beyond human likeness. Still in that condition, Jesus is forced to carry his own cross at least as far as he is physically able. And then when they get to the hill... Of his execution, he is laid down on some rough timber, naked, and nailed through the flesh into that wood and hoisted up, crucified. It is meant to be utter humiliation and utter torment. As he suffocates under his own weight, he has to pull up on the nails in his wrists and push up in the nail on his ankles to gain a full breath. And even there, his enemies mock him and berate him. He saved others. Why can't he save himself? If you're really the son of God, come on down from that cross. Can you imagine someone receiving that punishment for you? That's the torture that could be seen. The part beyond our vision and comprehension is what happened in the spiritual realm. As God the Father made God the Son the object of his wrath against the sin of the entire world. In that place, Jesus cries out in utter abandonment and anguish of soul, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Scripture tells us that darkness came over all the land. And after six hours on the cross of utter torment of body and soul, Jesus cries out again Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It is. And Jesus dies. In that moment, in the darkness that settled over all the land, it seemed that the message was clear Jesus defeated. And with it came overwhelming grief, fear, disillusionment for all who hoped in him. So why did Jesus die? Why did he die like that? Well, the Bible teaches us, as hard as it is even for us to comprehend, that Jesus died and he died like that because God loves us so much. That he loves us so much that he wouldn't hold back his one and only son. And that love has driven him to make a way to rescue us from the mess we've gotten ourselves into. That the human race has chosen to rebel against God. And as we walk away from God, we walk away from all that is purely good and light and life. And that sin that is offered us to, to us like, like a fruit seems so sweet. We can be like God. We could be a gods unto ourselves. But in the end, it proves to be a slave owner unto death. And God warned that sin would have that kind of cause and effect relationship. That the cause of sin produces the effect of death physically and spiritually. If you do this, you will die. Because it disconnects us from the author of life. Our bondage is not escapable. Our corruption is so complete that our, si- that our spirits become like zombies. And our bodies are on a fast track to the grave. Romans 6.23 puts it really plainly, saying, for the wages of sin is death. But that's exactly what God wants to rescue us from. To reunite us with him, to reunite us with his goodness and his light and his life. But to do so, we would need someone who had no sin of their own to pay for to take my death penalty, your death penalty for us. Who could? Who would? So the perfect God-man Jesus is born to a Virgin Mary and lives a perfect sinless life so that he could become your substitute. When Jesus died, he died as an innocent, sinless man for guilty, sinful mankind. The Apostle Paul explains in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Maggie read Friday evening from the prophet Isaiah. Who prophesied the fact is that it was our pains he carried, our disfigurements, all that was wrong with us. We thought he had brought it upon himself, that God was punishing him for his own failures, but it was our sins that that, that did that to him, that ripped and tore and crushed him, crushed him our sins. He took the punishment, and that made us whole. Through his bruises, we are healed. We're all like sheep who've wandered off and gotten lost. We've all done our own thing, gone our own way. And God piled all our sins, everything we've done wrong, on him, on him. And he does this so that to all who believe, God will say, Tim, you are forgiven. Your sin is absolutely 100% paid for. Let's do life together. <laughs> Sean, your sins are forgiven. 100% completely. Thrown as far as the east is from the west and dropped in the sea of forgetfulness, covered by the blood of the Lamb. It's done, it's finished. Let's do life together. Now, it sounds amazing, maybe too good to be true. A lot of religious figures have said a lot of things throughout the ages and made a lot of promises. How can I know that Jesus really paid my sin penalty before God, especially when that claim rests in his death? Boy, that seems awfully convenient. Maybe Jesus simply died like every other man. Maybe in the end the message really is Jesus defeated. And the reality is is that would be a safe conclusion if Jesus stayed dead. Because if you really m- remove the cause, it must remove the effect. No change in the effect, no change in the cause. Paul goes as far to argue in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Jesus stayed dead, and you all consider yourself, or many of you, maybe not all of you, consider yourself Jesus followers, a follower of a dead Jesus, then you're a collection of some of the most pathetic creatures on earth. All your faith, all your hope, all your devotion is worthless. Paul says that if Jesus is still dead, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. If Jesus stayed in the grave, your sin is futile, you are still in your sins. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. The message says, if all we get out of Christ is a little inspiration for a few short years, we're a pretty sorry lot. And so it would have seemed on that dark day of the cross. Day one, according to Jewish reckoning of time, day one was Friday. Crucified, dead, removed from the cross, wrapped in burial cloths, put away in a tomb. Day two, a quiet Sabbath, Saturday sun still rose, but I'm sure it didn't feel like that for the disciples. Still in the fog and darkness of their despair. And then the morning of day three, Sunday, the first day of the week, the sun rises again, but the gloomy fog of desolation, hopelessness must have felt impenetrable for it seemed surely the message was Jesus defeated maybe some of you even come here today it's Easter you come with your family (laughs) it's a day to go to church but inside all feels lost Inside, you say, What in the world is there really to hope in? But all is not as it first appears. That day in June of 1815, the message received through the fog, that message that devastatingly spread all throughout England, was Wellington defeated. And hours later, the fog lifts. And the message begins to be relayed again. First word, Wellington. Second word, defeated. We know this already. (laughs) We know that we've lost. We know that Wellington's been defeated. But what they don't realize is that there's something beyond those two words. That through the fog they did not receive the message in full. Third word, the fourth word Wellington defeated the enemy. They had not lost. They won. Jesus' followers didn't know there was anything beyond those first two days. Jesus defeated. Until the fog lifted on the third day. Very early in the morning, a few ladies go out to the tomb. They're going to finish anointing the body. There was a lot of haste that Friday night, it was the beginning of the Sabbath, they are going to anoint his mangled corpse, buried in a tomb cut out of the natural rock landscape, locked in by a large stone, sealed, guarded by Roman soldiers, just in case those disciples would come and fight against some armed, trained men and (laughs) try and steal the body at night. The Gospel of Mark tells us that the women's main logistical concern as they're going to the tomb is who will move the stone away. Because they knew his body would be there. We all understand scientifically that inanimate objects don't move on their own. An object at rest will stay at rest unless it's acted upon by an outside force. A dead body, unless it's acted upon by an outside force, will certainly remain put. I'm going to read Matthew 18, 1 through 10. After the Sabbath at dawn, on the first day of the week... There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell the disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshiped him. Then Jesus said, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Jesus defeated the enemy. An object at rest will stay at rest unless acted upon by an outside force. This is true of the stone. I I, kind of love that we're told that the angel sat on the stone. My guess is that angels don't really need to sit in the sense of rest, that he chose to sit... Triumph. Almost like an old cartoon where you know the good guy is sitting on the bad guy as the bad guy's wiggling underneath him. But the other object that, that was at rest was the body of Jesus. And the angel tells the women that he understands that they're looking for Jesus who was crucified, but they're looking in the wrong place. In Luke, we hear it posed as a question, why do you look for the living among the dead? The stone is rolled away. The guards have fled in absolute terror. And the angel invites them to see, well, nothing. Here, come and see what's not here. He invites them to see what's not in the tomb. The stone wasn't rolled away to let Jesus out. The stone was rolled away to reveal to his disciples that Jesus had already vacated the premises. These women, afraid yet filled with joy, hurry away from the tomb to relay the message to the other disciples, and they're booking, and as they're on their way... All of a sudden, out of nowhere, Jesus says, hello. Is it just a greeting? Greetings. Good morning. And all they could do is fall on their faces at his feet and worship (laughs) him. How appropriate. (laughs) Spontaneous worship. God the Son, who says of himself in Revelation 118, I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And he says, I hold the keys to death and Hades. Jesus defeated the enemy. Where do you expect to find Jesus? Confined in history books? embalmed in some lifeless religion, enclosed in some church building, locked away in books of theology, limited to days like Christmas and Easter. Perhaps you expect only to find him in some ambiguous afterlife experience, confined, embalmed, enclosed, locked away, limited, buried, buried, Immobile at rest and therefore staying at rest only to be seen and commemorated upon your visitation to some specific destination. Why do you look for the living among the dead? An object at rest will stay at rest unless it's acted upon by an outside force. Isaiah's prophecy continues in the 53rd chapter The plan was that he would give himself as an offering for sin so that he would see life come from it, life, life, and more life. If the cause is sin and the effect is death and Jesus conquers sin then the proof must be found, must be found, in the effect abolished. If the force that drove death has been undone, then death itself must be undone. By the force of life, the author of life, he must prevail. Jesus' resurrection was a triumph over death. But that means it is proof that his death was a complete triumph over sin. It is finished. Jesus defeated the enemy. And he didn't do this for himself, he literally did it for you. That his victory would become your victory. That's God's desire. That, that from that perfect seed of this dead body planted in the ground, there grew of the fruit of an immortal body that is this combination of the physical and spiritual like we've never known, but that that fruit of that body would be, as the scripture tells us, the first fruit of a great harvest to come. That the force of his life can act upon your dead spirit, your dying body, Romans 10 9 says, If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. He is Master, I am not. He is God, I am not. His way, not my way. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that what? God raised him from the dead. The proof. says, you will be saved. Romans 6, 8, and 9 from the message says, what we believe is this. If we get included in Christ's sin-conquering death, we also get included in his life-saving resurrection. We know that when Jesus was raised from the dead, it was a signal, I always love this, it was a signal of the end of death as the end. 1 John 3, 2 says, when he appears, we shall be like him. Mm. Through Jesus, you can be spiritually resurrected now. Now. The body will catch up later. And the Bible talks about that. Jesus, just as Jesus had this new body, all who believe in him will one day be granted a new body, immortal, just like his forever. It will be a glorious day. Amen? The body will catch up later, but your spirit can be resurrected today. The resurrection... Becomes for the Christian, as Philip Yancey put it, a preview of ultimate reality. <laughs> a preview of ultimate reality. Peter Kraft and, and Ronald Ticelli wrote in their handbook of Christian apologetics, "The greatest importance, the, resurre- the greatest importance of the resurrection is not in the past Christ rose." But in the present, Christ is risen. Let me read that again. The greatest importance of the resurrection is not in the past, Christ rose. But in the present, Christ is risen. Do you believe that? Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You can turn to Jesus today. You can turn to Jesus before you leave this building and call out to him. The Bible says, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Lord, I repent. You are Lord. You are God. I am not. I know you died for my sins. I know you rose victorious from the grave. And God will say, oh, good, because you know what? Your sins are paid for. You are forgiven. Let's do life together. The first incomplete message received in England in June of 1815 was Wellington defeated. The first incomplete message conveyed at the cross was Jesus defeated. But as the fog lifted that day in England to reveal that the reality was the complete opposite, so as the darkness lifted that weekend some 2,000 years ago in Israel... The message wasn't Christ defeated. The message actually was Christ is risen. Jesus defeated the enemy. Amen? Amen and amen. Let's pray. So dear God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we marvel at your plan, at your ways A story that we would have never written. (laughs) A rescue attempt that is so beyond us that we wouldn't even try to imagine it. But you did it. And you did it by fighting a battle on a cross, by surrendering like a sheep led to the slaughter by being a final sacrifice for sin, the atonement of sin, the substitution of all those who should die. And then as you rose three days later, ah, yes, the cause is done. The effect is reversed. Sin defeated. Death defeated. And all we need to do All we need to do is cry out to you and we come into perfect union with what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. Father, I beg you, if there's anyone here who has not done that, Lord, may they know the reality of your life today. Not some theory, not some religion, but the living Christ raising their soul to life. And hearing you say, your sins are forgiven, they are paid for 100%, let's do life together. Lord, we worship you, the living one, who has conquered death and holds the keys of death and Hades in his hand. We thank you for what you did on our behalf, for your grace. May we go out and shed this light to others.